Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. 1 Samuel chapter 1. In fact, we're going to work through the, uh, the whole chapter this morning. Don't let that put you off. Uh, but there are some things here that are so important to our understanding of God's character and nature, uh, especially this time of year. And, and, and one of those things is that God is obviously not oblivious to the trouble that's in our lives. Uh, in fact, the Bible is ref- refreshingly honest about them. And it's in the midst of most of the troubles when all hope seems gone that God carries out his purposes in our life. And so one of the reasons why the New Testament is able to speak to the the trials and tribulations of life so often is because Scripture knows that when life is difficult, God's at work. And and that's a a hope that we can really lean into. In 1 Samuel, uh, this is right around the beginning uh, of the the book, is uh, talking about the times of the judges. Now, we talked about that a lot last week, and so if you didn't get a catch-up from last week, let me encourage you to do that. A lot of this will make a a whole lot more sense. But the story that we talked about last week was Samson, and that was from the book of Judges. Now, 1 Samuel chapter 1 uh, would have overlapped with the time of Samson. In fact, about two-thirds of the way through Samson's ministry, if that's what we want to call it, to Israel... uh, Samuel would have been born during that time. So the, the time overlaps uh, quite a bit, although that's not obvious from this text or the previous one. Israel was living rather contentedly under pagan Philistine oppression. Uh, but, you know, we talked about that. That's just the backdrop. First Samuel chapter 1, right off the bat, zooms in on a woman, Hannah, and all of her troubles. So if you're taking notes and you want to know what we're going to talk about today, there are three things, and I don't typically preach on three things, but today is an anomaly. Number one, your trouble matters to God. Number two, your prayers matter to God. And number three, your salvation matters to God. In fact, those are the three most important things. Our troubles are the ways, obviously, the way that we live in this world. Our prayer is the overflow from this world that we give back to God. And oftentimes that results in our salvation, being able to see it from his perspective. So let's begin in verse 1, and we're going to read uh, down through the first few verses here together. Now there was a certain man of Ramathame Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, son of Zeph the Ephraimite. He had two wives. This is incredibly odd. There's some things about this story I'm not going to get into uh, today. But he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah. And, And fellas, she was the one. All right? Here's how we know that. The name of the other. Listen, for those of you who have two wives, don't call one of them the one and either of them the other. But her name was Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. 
Hannah in Hebrew, then in this writing, Hannah would have been the first wife. It seems, chronologically speaking, that Hannah and Elkanah had actually been married for 10 years at this writing. In that 10 years, she had produced no children. And it was in those years that she would have produced the most of them. Hannah is barren. And Hannah cannot produce children. And I don't know at what point, but when Elkanah married the other one, it seems to be so that she would have children and he would have heirs. So it's very important to their relationship, very important to their marriage. It was very important to their society. It was also very important for us to notice that they are making these decisions much like Abraham and Sarah would have made those decisions. Not by faith, but by let's help God out a little bit. It's our culture. Remember, they are under Philistine oppression. This is very common among the Philistines. And so here are God's people adopting the cultural norms of their enemies. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts. It's important because a lot of Israel was worshiping other gods too. Now, I don't know about Elkanah, but I know that he obviously is a devout man and makes it uh, uh, most Jewish men would have seen the importance of at least some point in their life to go to worship God face to face. Elkanah does it every year. At Shiloh. Now, that might surprise some of you because everybody knows that the temple is in Jerusalem. But not yet. This is the tabernacle in Shiloh. David is not the king yet. That's when the capital city was moved from Shiloh to Jerusalem with a permanent structure during Solomon's reign. So, uh, they would go up to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, and there were two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, and they were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion. That's another reason you know that she's the one. It's also one of the ways you know that he feels bad for her misery and maybe partially responsible. And so because he loved her, though what? He loved her even though the Lord had closed up her womb. Her rival used to provoke her grievously. You would think that these two wives would get along and be friends, wouldn't you? All right, we're tracking now, good. That's the help I needed. So it went year by year. And she would grievously irritate her. Let me go back. Because the Lord had closed her womb. And so you've got Peninnah, who is actually pretty difficult to be around. So it went year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Uh, sometimes that's the way it is on your drive to church, isn't it? <laughs> you go up to worship the Lord and you just feel nothing but provoked. Anyway, whatever, I, Digress. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Elkanah. So we're talking about the family here of Elkanah. He comes from a respected family. 
the Jews knew uh, would, would tell us that. The story tells us he was a pretty devout man. He obviously is fairly well-to-do, uh, is able to afford not just a trip for himself, but his entire family, both wives, all of his children, sons and daughters, to make this pilgrimage every year to go to Shiloh to offer also sacrifices, which was quite expensive for a family of this size. So he is more than able, apparently, to afford two wives. As I've already said, it seems that he prefers Hannah, although Hannah could not give him the one thing that a man during those days needed, and that was someone to help him work and someone to hand everything to. Clearly in verse 1, he has inherited a rich legacy himself, wants to pass it on. So Elkanah took a second wife, and you can imagine this relationship, it's obvious that Elkanah and Hannah love each other. She is devoted to him, he to her, but then there's this third woman, well, second woman, third person, that is now involved in their relationship. You can imagine the emotions and the devastation that would have caused Hannah. Now, even though polygamy is culturally acceptable during this time, Scripture is very clear that that is, and I know, you know, it's even illegal now for us, so, but it's very important because I hear this question a lot. This does not mean that this was ever God's plan or God's design for them. All right? So don't, don't take by the absence of some strike of thunder or bolt of lightning that God is in some way or another ordaining and orchestrating and, and uh, encouraging this. God's design from the very beginning, and Jesus even ratifies it in the book of Matthew, was between a man and a woman, those two, for all their days. So we see that marriage is supposed to be that way, and we can see the grief that it brings in Scripture when it's not that way. So just because Scripture retells it doesn't mean that God condones it. Even though Scripture tells of men who took multiple wives, and this is not the only one, it never, not one time presents that in a positive light. Just as we see here, when you deviate from God's good design, it brings nothing into your life but grief. So Peninnah is able to bear Elkanah children, but Hannah had none And so, as the story unfolds, we see that every year sitting in this celebratory feast days where they would go and offer their trespass offerings to the Lord, Panina takes the opportunity to remind Hannah, you might have been first, but look at all my kids. She'd really let Hannah have it. The reason that I believe that is true is because although she might have been able to bear children, she was always going to be the second wife. I just want to say it. Elementary kids are out, uh, I suppose, most of them. But I'm going to say it. Uh, Elkanah and Hannah have a relationship even though Hannah is not able to have children. So it seems that they really did truly love each other. It wasn't just a means to an end to have children. This text is very clear that Peninnah lords that over Hannah for no cause. Brings Hannah even to tears to the point where she is so depressed that she cannot, will not eat. So Elkanah was trying to help. Now, this is a little extra material here. 
uh, fellas, when your wife is feeling beat up, no matter who causes it, just let them, just let them, okay? Don't try to fix it. Don't try to be the fixer. Uh, you'll make it worse. You know, when, when, when you are already feeling really badly about yourself and you're having some identity issues and some validation issues like Hannah is having and, and she's venting, uh, what's El going to do? Honey, you, you still got me. <laughs> El listen, let me just say this. Four, uh, well, what, 3,000 years later, it ain't much better, is it, ladies? <laughs> uh. And yet, at the bottom of it all is God. Two different times, the Lord closed up her womb. The Lord, the narrator wants us to know for sure that they recognize this is the Lord that is in control of this. That may be the worst part of all of it. Is that the Lord can do something, the Lord's not doing something. And that's difficult. Because now, it's not a matter of, what am I doing wrong? or what am I? It's a matter of God. Now think about this. Think about it from Hannah's point of view because you know that she's wrestling with this. What have I done or why does God not like me? Look at the pain and devastation in my life. He has even allowed uh, my husband to be with another woman. Emotionally, verbally, socially, in every way, Hannah keeps getting kicked in the teeth according to her understanding. And the one guy that she could have talked to about it is trying to tell her how great he is. I think I don't just love you because you could have kids. I'm not valuable to you. More than 10 boys. So all, and I want you to listen, and I want you to forget about Hannah for a moment, and I want your name to be Hannah. All right, listen to this. All of Hannah's troubles can all be traced to the sovereignty of God. All of them. So now you don't have to ask any other questions because you know, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, that's where it lies. So know this, the Lord, your trouble matters to God. Your trouble matters to him as we continue to, to dig this out. You never know when you are in the middle of your own story, right? Hannah is convinced. I want you to write that down. And I want you to remind yourself of that whenever you're in trouble. You never know when you're in the middle of your own story. Hannah feels like she has come to the conclusion of her story. She's given up in despair. She doesn't have the benefit of the next few chapters of 1 Samuel. She's ready to give up. She's ready to close the chapter on who I am really. She's ready to call this a trouble, not knowing that God is at work now, maybe even more obvious than ever before. You never know when you're in the middle. You may think you're at the end. You may think there's a period or an exclamation point and there may just be a comma. See, it's the Lord closing Hannah's womb that has led to this rivalry, to these miserable trips and these terrible meals, and to Hannah's deep sorrow. 
And as a worshiper of Yahweh, and obviously they were faithful, even in a pagan culture, they would, Hannah would have understood this. The Lord can, but the Lord won't. Now, for me, I'm sitting here thinking, if the Lord can and he won't, then that doesn't really affect who God is. It affects my view of myself. Then what's wrong with me? What's my problem? Why won't God favor me? Surely some of those questions would have crossed Hannah's mind, just like I know those questions affect yours when you're in trouble. And I, I believe that probably the deepest pain that's here is because if God has rejected you, then what hope is there? If God has rejected me, then what hope do I possibly have? Why would I get up tomorrow? So Hannah's trouble belongs to God, but as we'll see, far from this being the source of despair, this truth is actually her best hope. It's, her, it's our best hope. So this, uh, this text, this portion of the text highlights the truth that God is sovereign over everything that happens in our lives, even our trouble. People really do struggle with this truth. I struggle with this truth. Because the troubles that we face in this world can be so horrific. And the Bible doesn't deny it. In fact, Jesus speaks more about the trouble you're going to have than he does the peace that you will have. <laughs> Tells us that we can have it in the midst of trouble. But I'm going to talk a little bit about theology here. And it might be a little startling because I don't think it's the way we often think Scripture is very clear that God can superintend evil in our lives even while remaining perfectly pure and holy and righteous. And even while people are still responsible for the evil that they commit or the consequences that come from disobedience, God can superintend evil, even the ones we deserve. It's the fact that God reigns over evil in this world, and I want you to think about that. There's... there's I have no grief in saying that. God does reign over the evil in this world. It assures us that God is able to use even human evil and suffering to accomplish his purposes. There, there is not an evil. There is no trouble that is beyond God's perfect control. So, if that's true, or I should say since that is true... When evil, when loss, when sickness, when disasters happen in your life, it's not because God was defeated or because his head was turned. It's not because Satan won. Our troubles belong to God, and we need to know this because if it's true, then our suffering in our life is not because it's beyond God's power to redeem us or use it for his glory. Every trouble, every pain, every problem that we experience in our life can be used to accomplish God's purpose for us. His goal is not to keep you from trouble. His goal is to use trouble to replicate Christ in us. That is so important for us to understand. The goal is not for you to be miserable. The goal is for you to become like Christ. And there are some things about Christ that cannot come to pass in our lives without experiencing certain levels of trouble. 
But here's the important thing. Here's, where I, here's why I think that matters. Hannah and Samuel's story here reminds us that while God may use trouble, he is not indifferent or callous to our suffering. That's where the issue lies. He may allow you to suffer. He may allow trouble in your life, but he cares. He cares. Hannah had no answers as to why, and neither will you most of the time. So then, you will not be able to predict at any given time what that trouble is accomplishing. Your responsibility is not to figure out the trouble, not to figure out the source, maybe not even to figure out how God is going to use it. Your responsibility is to simply trust his timing in his hand. That's what this passage of scripture tells us. You're not going to avoid trouble. You're not going to avoid sorrow. You're not going to avoid rivals. You're not going to avoid difficulty. And your goal is not to figure them out. Your goal is to endure them while you wait on his hand. Just know this. He is at work and he cares. Your trouble matters to God. And let me, you know, talk about the to and the through. For, for me, things happen to us so they can happen through us. We need to recognize that as well. Other people, their trouble needs to matter to us. We need to, be, we need to have eyes open and ears open, listening to the hurting of those around us. Being able to speak his life and his light into those times. All right. Let's move on to 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 9, or verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting at the seat behind the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Do you get a sense of her desperation here? She was deeply distressed and wept bitterly. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. That's a judgmental priest, right? I guess. I don't know. Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out my great anxiety and vexation. Eli answered, Go in peace, and God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So again, in her great anguish and her grief, she is crying out to the Lord. But here she has reached a new place of desperation. There's no question that her desperation is tied to this current situation, and, and yet part of that anguish is wondering, 
And in, in her cry, we know what she's praying here now, but where is God? Why has he forgotten me? And I can't, I, I want you just to, I, I don't know that this is, I don't know. That just As I sense in discernment what she's processing through, this is how we get here, okay? When she looks into her mirror, she sees someone who cannot do what she always thought she would be able to do. And it, her view of herself, when she sees her husband, guess what? We know now she has superimposed those same feelings that she has toward herself. I know that's what he's thinking of me too. It's affect, affecting the way that she sees her husband. It's affecting the way she relates to him. And now she's even with the priest. And how does she address the priest? She knows that she feels worthless. She knows that her husband must think she's worthless. And when the priest addresses her, what does she say? Don't think me a worthless woman. Everybody thinks I'm worthless. Who in this passage has called her worthless? Not one. Not a person. We already know what God, well, we should know what God is going to do through Hannah. We know what God's view of her is. We obviously can sense what Elkanah's view of her is. We know what Eli's view of her would be if she hadn't been so desperate in these moments. But it's the struggle in her life, the trouble in her life that brought her to that desperation. Where she set all of that aside and cried in great anguish to the Lord and was able to be heard. See, our prayers matter to God. How, how you believe God affects the way you believe God thinks about you. And the way that you believe that God thinks about you will drive your thoughts. And your thoughts will drive your behavior. This is why our identity in Christ is so important. To be able to know who we are and not just to depend upon our feelings. What we believe about God will determine what we believe God thinks. What we believe God thinks about, it, about us will determine how we think about ourselves. That will determine our feelings. That will determine our thoughts. Our thoughts will determine our behavior. In, in verse 18, we, we see that not one thing has changed. And yet Hannah has come out of the fog. Why? Because she gave her cares over to the Lord who said, if you're weary and heavy laden, come to me and I'll give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Oh, I know that Jesus said that later. But it's the same God. The same God that is our rock and our refuge, our safe place, our shelter. You know, if I draw who I am from culture, I'm going to forget who I am. If I draw who I am from my husband or my wife, I'm going to struggle with who I am. If I struggle with who I am, I'm going to struggle with who I am if I derive my identity from the people I even go to church with, even my priest. But if I remember who I am in Jesus Christ... That will change everything. If I can remember that he values me, 
if I can remember who I am and that his, it's his glory, not what I think about myself that matters. That's everything. The Puritans used to have a saying, and, and, and they would say, that to encourage people when they were struggling, they would say, pray until you pray. If this were a class, I would say, what do you think that means? Pray until you pray. Well, what they thought that it means is when you go to the Lord, you stay there until you can feel it. There's no, Lord, thank you for this food. There's no, Lord, give me a good night's sleep. Lord, give us a good day. Lord, help us to get there safely. There's a, a, a praying until you can really begin to sense the struggle and the trouble that's coming out of your life and you're really able to give that over to the Lord. Pray until you pray. Don't be satisfied with rope prayers. Don't be satisfied with certain times of the day where you know, you're obligated or in a habit of praying. We need to pray until we pray. Pray being aware of the wonder and the audacity of prayer. Picturing yourself in the very throne room of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords as he extends his scepter to hear your prayer. Notice that Hannah wasn't comforted before her prayer. She was comforted after her praying. Prayer isn't valuable because we get stuff from God because honestly, she got up from prayer and hadn't gotten anything. Not one thing had changed except that she was now empty of her trouble and she was built back up. See, prayer is valuable in itself because we turn to God and God is our greatest treasure. So I want you to listen to this very, very closely. We go through our days surrounded by troubles, and these troubles challenge our faith in God. Does God really love me? Does God really care? Is God really listening? Is he even there? Is the gospel true for me? Can God really forgive what I've done? Does God really care about my suffering? Has God forgotten me? These doubts begin to produce real sorrow and they will affect how you feel about yourself and your value. And they will actually begin to cause deeper sorrow and deeper bitterness and deeper hopelessness than our trouble caused. How we view ourselves is the most deadly weapon that Satan has. And while God uses trouble to create Christ-likeness in it, Satan will allow that trouble If you will give him his voice in your life, he will drive you directly from a God who is at work. You see, everything is a blessing if it brings us closer to Jesus and his glory. Isn't that true? If God is our treasure, if the kingdom of God is the the pearl out in the field, if it's the treasure... And wouldn't it make sense that anything that would bring us into his presence would be a blessing? You ever heard people say, hey, you need to list your blessings, name them one by one? I mean, I'm going I'm to flip that a minute. I want you to take out a piece of paper, not right now, and I want you to write down all your trouble. Everything in your life that you would change if you could. And I want you to start praying over it. Giving them to the Lord. And I want you to watch your trouble list Become, become your blessing list pretty quickly. Because everything can be a blessing when it brings you closer to Him. When you can see Him just on the other side, every situation you have, if you could just see Him on the other side at work, you can look over your trouble and you can see His glory from here.
you'll find out pretty quick that your trouble is not, and this is hard to hear. I'm still sorting through it myself. Your trouble is not your biggest problem. Your selfishness, your pride, your arrogance, and your self-sufficiency is your biggest problem. And the Lord uses trouble to point that out to you. But when you keep your eye on your trouble, it's all you can see. Why am I not enough? Verse 19. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. And they went back to the house of Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she calls his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked from, for him from the Lord. The man, Elkanah, and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Oh, maybe he's learned something. I don't know. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the word of the Lord, or the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. And then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted my, me my petition that I have made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Now, if the story ended with Hannah being inwardly comforted in the midst of her trouble, then we would be left with an incomplete picture, wouldn't we? Because when she got up from her prayer, she was free. But the Lord doesn't stop with just this inner peace. The Lord continues to work through until there is complete salvation. We serve a God who acts in time and space and reality on behalf of those who cry out to him. And just like God remembered Noah, and just like God remembered Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, now God remembers Hannah. And it's not that God's memory had been faulty all along. This is actually, in Hebrew language, it indicates that now is the time that God is about to do what God had planned to do all along. God actually doesn't even respond to her prayer. God was always going to do this through Hannah. But now Hannah was living in anticipation of what God was going to do. And so God opens Hannah's womb and she conceives and she gives birth to a son. And now the time has come for her to go back to Shiloh for the annual sacrifice and the feast. It's her chance to take little baby Samuel on her lap and to chew up his portion of steak and give it to him so he can eat it right there in Panina's face. Hannah said, no, I'm not going to go till he's weaned because the next time I go will be the last time I see him because I gave him to the Lord. Wait a minute. Can you remember back just not long ago, Hannah, her mindset was, I don't have a child. I'm nobody in the sight of my husband because he doesn't have an heir to leave the business to and all the land. There's nobody here to help him work the field or whatever job that it is. I can't produce an heir. 
and how that gravitated all the way to maybe God has forgotten me. And what was her prayer? Remember what her prayer was at the tabernacle? Lord, remember me. Her problem now had escalated from not being able to have children. It's escalated now to, I don't think God loves me anymore. That was her greatest grief and struggle. It wasn't childbearing. It was, what's wrong with me? And here's what God did. God reached down and touched her and reminded me, I love you. I am right here. I've always loved you. And the thing that she wanted most was to have a child. She said, I'm giving that child back to the Lord. My husband still won't have an heir. He still won't have help in the field. He still won't have anybody to inherit the land. Not one thing changed for Hannah except for this. I'm reminded that the Lord loves me. He does remember me. He does care. And that's all she needed to know. I am convinced that in your trouble, that's all you need to remember. So I'm here to remind you, when you think all hope is lost and you're taking your valuation of yourself from how you feel God thinks about you, how you feel your family thinks about you, how you feel that the world around you deals with you or validates you, you're in dangerous territory because you're about to lose it all. Let that value remind you of who Jesus Christ is on the cross and how he poured his life out to you. And remember, he is for you. He's always been for you. He was for you before you were for yourself. In his self, he was selfless before you were selfish. He's always at work. He's always accomplishing Christ in our life. Put your eyes on that and you will be able to see the salvation of the Lord. Now, she gets him up to Shiloh. Weaning time is about two years. But it doesn't say in that year, that next time to go. It's the moment he was weaned. When he was weaned, she went by herself and took that boy. And she said, now I'm going. And he said, fine. And she took that trip by herself. And some English translation says a three-year-old bull. The Hebrew, there's a little issue with plurals and singulars in this particular context. But the literal translation is she took three bulls with her to Shiloh. And that little two-year-old boy and said, Lord, he belongs to you. And then priest Eli said, what am I supposed to do with a two-year-old little boy? <laughs> no, I don't think it's what he said. I think it's interesting that Samson, that choice, God told Manoah and his wife, you will make him take a Nazarite vow. Here, Hannah said, I'll take a Nazarite vow for you, Lord. That's how serious I am. I think it's interesting. They both took Nazarite vows. One, God told them to. Hannah volunteered on the other one. It's interesting to me too. Samuel's going to be the last judge of Israel. God actually uses Samuel as the last judge of Israel to anoint the first king of Israel and the second king of Israel. Watch this. Through desperation, a person who had lost their identity and their value of God, God used them to produce a judge a judge that grew up in the priesthood. A judge who grew up in the priesthood who was the, uh, a prophet 
who spoke on behalf of God, who anointed kings. Wait a minute. Samuel is connected to the judge, who's the prophet, the priest, and anoints a new kingdom to come in and reign in the lives of God's people. Does that sound familiar? How God uses the struggles of this world to produce redemption? Listen, he's already done that once in your life. He's brought you the saving knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. He has redeemed you. He has restored you. He has brought you back from the dead. And now he's offering that same salvation to the world around us through you. And he may just use your trouble and your identity in the middle of that trouble and remind people who you know that are in trouble around you of who they can be and that God does care. Maybe that's the greatest gift we can possibly give is not to bear children for the world and to populate that way, but to bring about the kingdom of God in this world. Maybe what we think about ourselves not nearly as important as knowing what he thinks about us and ushering that into the world. And when we do that, we'll begin to see Christ in ways we've never seen before. But while we wait, know these things. Know that your trouble matters to the Lord. And in your trouble, He's at work. He is producing Christ-likeness in you through that trouble. While you're waiting, pour your heart and your soul out to Him in your anguish. And you'll find that your anguish becomes your blessings pretty quickly. And know this, he is using us to bring his salvation in a kingdom that the world is desperate for because they're still under oppression. God is at work, brothers and sisters. And it's through these miraculous births that God's giving us a picture so that we'll know what Jesus Christ looked like when he comes. Our prophet, our priest, and our king. Lord, we love you and we thank you so much. And your word also tells us that you are our righteous judge. And we thank you for that. In all the ways that Samuel might have failed as a person, Lord, we have the picture of the perfect son of God who did not fail and who has accomplished it not only for his family, who has accomplished it not only for his nation, but has accomplished it for every man and woman that will ever be born. So Lord, I pray as we process this identity issue, every, every bit of anguish, every bit of sorrow, every bit of struggle that we experience, it really does all come down to identity. So Lord, while we do have dreams and we do have hopes about what our life will look like, I pray that those, those will always be second to your perfect timing and your perfect will. Help us to always look for King Jesus first. Help us not to settle for a false king, a false dream. Help us to remember who you are. Help us to remember that your thoughts for us are as many as the stars in the sky and the sands of the seashore and that every thought is good. And when we remember that, Lord, it changes the way we feel about ourselves. And when we change the way we feel about ourselves, it will affect the way we treat and view those around us. So Lord, help us to be encouragers even in our anguish. 
Help us to be encouragers even in our pain. And help us to look in the mirror, remind ourselves, and then take that message and, and give it to our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends and our family that you are for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. This morning I want to just uh, I want to encourage you again. A couple takeaways. And maybe you need to pray through them. You know, when you're writing things down and you're saying, Lord, this is something and this is something. And if this were changed and identifying what those deep pains are, be able to give those to the Lord and watch him begin to work. Watch him change your frame of mind and begin to work. And I care about you. I care about how you view yourself. This is, I, I say it a lot, this is a weird year. And I think there's a, there's a whole lot of issues emotionally and mentally that folks are dealing with. There's a whole lot of fears that people are wrestling with. And if we're not careful, we'll forget who we are in Christ. I see people doing that. Don't forget who you are. His kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Be a citizen of that kingdom. Don't forget who you are in that kingdom and forfeit your right to reign with him. So let me encourage you. Hold fast your identity in Christ. Jesus in us, the hope of glory. You are dismissed. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.